take thou authority to preach the gospel. Indeed, I look upon all the world as my parish. Welcome to this latest episode of Field Preachers. My name is Rachel Gilmore. I work here at Path One at Discipleship Ministries, and I am so excited that without much advance notice, Brandon was able to join us today so that we could talk a little bit, reflect on, um, as church planters, how we should be responding, what we should know, what we should be doing to empower our communities as we are seeing this massive response to the murder of George Floyd and Brown Taylor and countless others. Uh, so there's been a shift in our nation. Let's talk about that from a church planting perspective. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brandon, for joining us today. You wanna tell us a little bit about yourself, your call story, help our um, listeners get to know you a little bit more. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rachel. Um, yeah, um, my call story, I'm from a little town in North Carolina. <laughs> I feel like I, I won't give you all the details, I promise you, but, I, but I, it's important. Um, you know, part of what um, enables <clears throat> white supremacy and, um, yeah, the legacy of um, of this kind of violence that we're seeing in our country, a part of what allows that culture to live is, um, is um, not being people who are embodied, people who are placed. And so it's important for me to start there, that I come from a people in a place. Mm. Um, and the place that I come from is a little county called Moore County um, in North Carolina. It's in the eastern part of the state. And my people are uh, working people, uh, black folks, um, teachers, and um, they are um, domestic workers. They are um, folks that work out um, in the field. Um, and, and so those, those are my people. Um, I, I come from a, <clears throat> from a long lineage of uh, church folks, folks that love church, small church, storefront church, um, family churches. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's, that's a big part of who I am and sort of what brings me to this place. Um, the person that had the, the greatest impact on me spiritually growing up uh, was my mother. My mother was the person who discipled me in the faith um, and really kind of got me on fire for, uh, for mission and for justice. And so, um, so early on, you know, she kind of sort of set the script or the model for me of what it looked like to be a disciple and that that was deeply um an evangelistic and prophetic and apostolic way of of um embodying leadership in the world and um and i'm I'm grateful to her for that because um not only has that uh deeply shaped me it's got me in a lot of trouble um (laughs) good, good good holy trouble um for the kind of transformation we want to see in the world and there's it's not possible to have transformation without chaos and um and instability and um and change and so um hopefully it's okay this is what i promise y'all <laughs> um and so so yeah i my sense of call is has always been to that kind of um <clears throat> leadership in the world that kind of uh, leadership where i am sort of pushing the edges um of um what it means to be the church and do the church um and so so yeah deeply deeply um, rooted in the the lineage of the black prophetic radical Christian tradition, and um, and so yeah, so my background has been um, a lot of in sort of parachurch church planting kind of context, um, the nonprofit world, higher ed, um, and more recently um, in 2013, sort of really uh, felt 
the urge to really squarely be within the local church. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and primarily because of the, 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 um, the, the state that the church is in right now, right. That, that we're in this massive, um, this space of massive, uh, shifting. Um, and so it just, if I think that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. at the time when God was like pastor in the local church, I'm like, God, what's wrong with you? Right. <laughs> like that's, that's not, that's not, that's not the DNA of what my mom taught me. It's like, you're mm-hmm. always in relationship to you're leading in the church, but like you're pushing the, pushing the envelope, pushing the edges. Um, but yeah, so the urge, and I think now looking back, what I see is that, um, there is a need for, um, new models, um, so that we can, um, right now, a kind of, a kind of figurative, uh, prefigurative kind of, uh, practice of church so that the church that is coming, we're already practicing it now. And so I think that's a big, you know, looking back, I think that's what God was up to with telling me to do that. And so um, got connected to the Western North Carolina Annual Conference in 2013, um, leading, <clears throat> leading um, in a small rural white church that was dying. Um, and we started a, a mission house is the language that we used at the time, got some funding from the Duke Endowment. And eventually that turned into a nonprofit and the church grew. Um, and we, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful experience and very challenging. And at the same time, um, if you, if you've been watching anything on the news over the last seven years, 2013 was also when George Zimmerman was acquitted, um, of murdering Trayvon Martin. And so when I made that transition to rural, white, mountainous North Carolina to lead um, in the local church, um, I wasn't I, I didn't know that was going to also be happening. And so it was a rough time. Um, we my, my family and I, we finally um, <clears throat> uh, we got a, a sense of, of, of a shifting um, after four years of being of being um, in that rural community. And uh, yeah, just felt the the tug to to plant again, <laughs> um, and um, and so uh, as it as it were, we we connected with the district superintendent um, in the Northern Piedmont district here um, in the West North Carolina Conference, and um, hadn't hadn't met her from anywhere, had never met her before, and I was there to uh, I had come down to teach a workshop on how small rural churches can do missional engagement. Um, and, uh, and she was like, I think you're the person we've been looking for. And I'm like, what? I don't even know you. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, um, she told me that they had had a burden. Um, she had had a burden and many lay leaders and, uh, and clergy there that had been in the, the district for a long time and the bishop had, had wanted to plant a multiracial um, missional urban church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And like, and they knew that from all the studies that you need to start that off with a planter of color. And so she's like, I think you're who we've been looking for. I was like, well, you don't really know me, but let's have some conversation. And um, so we did. Um, and we uh, relocated um, with um, my family and a, and a white family that had lived with us and done missional ministry with us in that rural context um, um, down to Greensboro in 20, uh, 2017. Um, we started coming down in 2016 to have conversations and pray, et cetera, read together and um, started Good Neighbor Movement in the summer of 2017. And so uh, and Good Neighbor Movement is um, <clears throat> is a um, uh, <clears throat> is a multiracial, uh, queer affirming, black led, justice seeking network of missional communities. Uh, we call them city villages here in Greensboro. 
Uh, and so, um, yeah, I'm excited to be on to talk about the neighbor movement, about what's happening in our country right now and how all that's intersected with what it means to be a faith leader, to be a Jesus follower, to do church differently um, at a time like this. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for engaging this dialogue. Uh, because a way, you know, we were talking, I was talking with my colleagues this week and we're like, here at Path One, when it comes to church planting, what's something intentional that we can do and bring light to, to help us be more aware of our need to be anti-racist in everything we do when it comes to church planting. And you're one of the planters I've heard about the most when it comes to the issue of this decolonizing approach to planting and addressing racism in our nation with this dialogue. So tell me about this passion, why you think this shift is important for all of us to embrace as United Methodists with every single faith community that we plant moving forward. Yeah, you know, there is a long, we, you know, I, I use this term um, that is a riff off of um, the V3 church planting movement. They, they have a term they call the church industrial complex. And uh, I really appreciate that framing. And what they're trying to do there is they're trying to say that um, the church has kind of been in bed with sort of big business, if you will, right? Um, and big politics even, right? And, um, and what that means is we, we have sort of sacrificed the slow, um, the slow and transformative work of um, disciple making and mission for for this other stuff, right? And um, um, and so I riff off of that and 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 talk about the white church industrial complex, right? Mm-hmm. And part of what the the, the, the sort of marriage of <clears throat> of sort of individualism and consumerism with the legacy of white supremacy, you can trace that lineage all the way back to this country's founding, right? Um, and um, that 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 at, at every place where the church is setting up shop is also a place where there is displacement and there is uprooting um, of people who were there first um, or of people who were in another place and were stolen to work, right? The land and the economy that kept those churches going. Now, sure, there are absolutely um, uh, uh, strong prophetic examples throughout the history of the church, um, the white church and otherwise in this country, where folks were pushing against that, that legacy and that tradition. But by and large, that's, that's what we've inherited, right? And so, um, so in other words, what we've inherited is a colonizing model of church. Um, and, um, you know, we use different language for it now, but, um, you know, what we, the way that, the way that that shows up in, in church planting now, well, let me, let me back up a little bit. You know, um, th- during the sort of 80s and 90s in the church growth movement, this looked like, um, you know, the the homogenous unit principle, right, is the kind of the, the, the shape that it took, the shape that colonization took, right? Um, and now what we're seeing is that the church is basically um, uh, is is silent about and, and, and reinforcing often subtly and behind the scenes the very forces of gentrification, gentrification and displacement, um, in urban and rural communities across this country and, um, places where folks who are native to that place, um, who are often black and brown folks, but also white folks, but, but are working folks, um, are pushed aside and are, um, yeah, pushed out of those, those places. And, um, and so the question becomes, um, in in what ways, um, does the church have a responsibility to curb that tide? Of, of displacement and uprooting, right? Um, especially since it's been a part of the DNA and the legacy, the lineage for, for, for generations, right? Here in this country. 
um, in particular white churches, um, mainline churches and evangelical churches. And so, so, deco- so there's a, there's a fierce urgency for decolonizing churches because frankly, um, if we don't do that, I'm not sure that we're going to, we're going to be church, right? Because the, what I see in the gospels um, is rather than a kind of a, a God that um, extracts, a God that takes, right? A God that, um, that pushes out what I see in the gospels and Jesus, right? All the way from the beginning of the, of the biblical story is a God that dwells. Mm, that moves into that, the neighborhood. Yeah. That moves into the neighborhood. A God that, a God that, um, that, that moves in humility, right? A God that, um, that seeks to learn even, right? <laughs> right. Um, a God that seeks to build relationship. And, um, and so, yeah, like I question the, uh, a lot of the sort of, um, the, the habits and practices <clears throat> and strategies that our churches take and especially our church planting takes um, in local communities is often very extractive. Um, it's, it's often very um, um, displacing. Um, and I think we can do better. And uh, we have a model, right? We have a model and we have a lineage. Um, and our, our great, as one of my mentors says, our great movement founded Jesus, right? Jesus shows us very, very carefully how to, um, how to build with people um, and not build on top of people. So thank you for that. Well, and something that could help us, particularly in United Methodism, as we're trying to decolonize our church planting approach would be to have people of more people of color planting churches. Right. If the voices aren't heard, then and their leadership isn't seen, then how can we get there? But like historically in the UMC, we have not done a great job of recruiting people of color as planters Mm -hmm. and a lot of annual conferences. They have limited training opportunities for ethnic or multicultural church plants. So -hmm. what would you say, Brandon, to other planters of color who want resources or a place to just connect and know they're not alone? Yeah. You know, I think the first thing that I would say is to to dig deep in your own lineage, right? Um, I one of the things that I think seminaries un- unintentionally, I don't think they intend to do this, but seminaries and often our church planting structures do again, and um, it's part of the piece of um, of this extractive colonizing approach is they tell us that what you what you bring with you isn't enough, mm. that you need to learn from us to learn how to do this. And and in fact, I, that's not true, right? Like um, we can look at we can look at the lineage of um, black and indigenous um, and leaders of color, uh, faith leaders of color throughout this country's history to see the ways in which <clears throat> um, church planting it it wasn't called that for sure, but right, like church planting um, has been a part of the DNA, right? Um, and so I think the first thing I would say is tap into your own lineage. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, that's really critical. And that's the reason why I centered my mom at the beginning. Right. Like um, like my my the people who who of course I could shout. I've, I've read with the best of the, the you know, the best of the seminary graduates, you know, or, or theologians. But like um, my mom is who who discipled me in what it means to, to build with people um, and to, to go deep with people around faith and around um, justice in the world. Right. And to and to and to organize people. Um, their leadership so that we build communities, right? Like my mom taught me that, right? Um, she didn't have the resources that some of the institutional resources that she deserved to be able to put a title or to put money 
um, or to put infrastructure behind all that, but it's there. And frankly, I think it's what we need if we're going to have the kind of um, the kind of um, you know to to use some some of the sort of church planting language to have to have a kind of movemental expression of church in a time where um, the church is on the fringes, um, where it is on the margins. We need to learn from if, if the church is on the margins right now. We need to learn from people who've been on the margins that margins that have been doing church. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. Um, I think that there are some cool groups that are emerging across the country that that can be helpful in this regard. Um, and so I just I just name some of those folks, uh, some of those organizations. Um, one is um, um, the Christian Community Development Association. I have a, a longstanding relationship with them. They don't consider themselves a church planting organization, but they certainly are a um, holistic gospel mission organization. And um, and so I think that's a good place to tap into, um, led by leaders of color, right? Um, more from the evangelical tradition, and 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 in particular, I would say, because um, uh, 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 oftentimes the folks that, that word evangelical is tricky these days. But I, what I mean by that is evangelical um, uh, communities of color, and so so CCDA is the acronym. I would also um, lift up, um, and sorry, my kids are in the background. It's it's it's, it's Pandemic days, so you know. <laughs> I've text going off. My husband's like, "I'm grocery shopping. What do we need?" This is That's our new right. reality. There's That's no right. That's right. Um, so CCDA, I would also lift up the Center for Prophetic Imagination. Um, again, not a church explicitly a church planting organization, but are training leaders in how to um, embody prophetic witness in their places. Um, and definitely brings to bear in the work of um, Christian leadership uh, the importance of the community organizing tradition, right, which is absolutely vital. And I'll say more about that later. Absolutely vital to my work with Good Neighbor Movement. Um, and frankly, like an essential skill that I feel like church planters need to have if they're not going to have a colonizing approach. Um, and so Center for Prophetic Imagination. I would also lift up a project that I'm involved with um, starting, which is called the Liberating Church Project. Um, and that project is really trying to tap into the history of the Hush Harbors, uh, which uh, was the church of enslaved Africans. Um, and um, yeah, uh, definitely a decolonized approach of, of, uh, of church. So I'd lift, I lift that up, Liberating Church. Um, and then I'd also lift up... Um, uh, the the lineage of the um, the Samuel Dewitt Proctor um, Institute, which is a part of the Children's Defense Fund, um, and uh, they have a they have an annual summer institute where it's all about um, faith leaders coming together to talk about what it means to build communities um, of justice in the world, right? And so again, from that community organizing tradition. Um, Make sure I'm not leaving anything out here. Um, you know, I, I also want to lift up uh, some organizations that that um, that are not necessarily rooted in <clears throat> um, communities of color, but are are striving, in, in my opinion, in, in really intentional and thoughtful ways to be more decolonizing, to be more multiracial in their approach um, and anti-racist in their approach. And that's folks like the, the Parish Collective. Uh, good friends there. Um, uh, again, a, a real emphasis and focus on place and building relationships and um, and uh, dwelling with folks. 
Um, and then I've also I've already mentioned the V3 church planting movement um, is a really powerful, um, powerful expression as well. So, so this is something. The last one I'll say is world impact. I have a good friend, um, Alvin Sanders, who leads world impact. It is expressly for um, church planters of color in urban context. And it's a training ground for, for them. Um, and so definitely want to lift them up as well. That's great. Thank you so much for those incredible resources. And I want to circle back to something you mentioned so that we can hear you talk a little bit more about it when you, um, you know, you were addressing the importance of community organizing or mobilizing folks. So, I mean, the good neighbor movement, like, let's be honest, Brandon, you guys have been leading this voice for change, even way before the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. So what Mm -hmm. advice would you give to other black planters who are trying to find ways to mobilize their communities right now? Yeah. You know, um, I would say uh, it's really, really important to be in conversations with activists, for sure, um, with artists, with young people. Um, it's really, really important to be tapped into um, uh, a uh, the community of elders that have been doing the work of um, social transformation, especially social transformation that's spiritually rooted. It's important to be connected to them. Um, um, I would also say, uh, that, yeah, it's really, really important to, to be in proximity to where the pain is, Mm. right. Um, to, to not, to not run away from that, but to be close to that. Um, I actually really, really think that like one of the best roles for, uh, um, for a planter in the midst of, um, the, uh, the racial unrest that we're experiencing right now in our country is, is to, is to seek to be less visible actually. Hmm. Um, because I think that, again, if, if what we're trying to do is organize and mobilize, right, which is what we're talking about, um, uh, you have to create space. You have to make space for others to be visible. You have to make space for others to grow and to learn. Right. And so I think our role is primarily as coach. Our role is primarily as catalyst. Um, our role is primarily as someone that accompanies. Um, and I think that the more that we can play those kinds of roles, the more that we can build movement, the more that we can build leaders, the more that we can uh, create spaces um, so that so that, yeah, it, it, it lives beyond just our tenure. It lives just, it lives beyond just our leadership. I think that's critical. Again, and that's also critical to a decolonizing approach to church. Right. Is that um, what you're trying to do is you're trying to give away privilege. You're trying to give away right space um, in order to. Uh, for others to, to to really blossom and and to see their full potential. So, I love that because I see so many you know planters, pastors. We can all fall into this where we want our faith community to be pastor centric, planter centric, where we're yep. the ones that are in the midst of everything. And I, so I love that reminder that we are called to to coach, to be that catalyst, but to empower and equip others so that it is sustainable regardless yep. of where we go next. Um, so along those lines for pastors who are struggling with self-care because maybe they don't feel yeah. or they're overwhelmed or they're just empty, you know, what does self-care look like right now for African-American church planters? Yeah, you know, I, I can't speak to all African-American church planters, but I can, I can speak for myself. I mean, one is that I've got, you saw me with some water. So that's one thing. <laughs> um, make, make sure you're drinking and eating and not overeating. Um, and so I think... Um, I think that the the now is a really good time to be, um, uh, yeah, getting out, walking the neighborhood, right? Like we can't be together uh, physically the way that we were before, but that doesn't mean that we can't get out and from a distance sort of um, 
be cartographers, right? Like of, of, of our neighborhood, of our city, of the, the future that we long for, right? Like there's ways in which like you can get out and walk um, and talk, talk to folks from a distance. Um, and, and, and at the same time, like, right, like it's a healthy practice, right? Like, um, for yourself bodily. Um, I think, um, yeah, we've been, I've been doing a whole lot of journaling, a whole lot of meditation, um, in community by myself. Um, um, definitely a great time to be doing, catching up on some reading, right. Um, so that we, we, we are remaining, um, yeah, just kind of sharp in terms of um, how, how we um, approach the work that we're doing, that we're being, we, we, we're not uninformed, you know? Um, I think some other self-care practices for me that have been helpful is, yeah, like getting out um, on the, I do porch sitting, you know? So um, like tonight, Friday nights, we do some porch sitting, um, socially distanced, socially distant porch sitting with, with friends and colleagues and comrades that are doing good work here in the, in the city. And um, yeah, those are some ways that like have been really meaningful for me. That's great. And to tie that back into the role that you talked about for church planters to be this coach or this catalyst, when it comes to self-care, how are you or how have you seen others creating um, an opportunity to model that self-care for the community? Like I'm thinking in yeah. particular about your Facebook post where I saw you and others were staffing, was it called a healing space tent? That's right. Yeah. Talk about that. That just sounds yeah. incredible. It was so powerful. So. Um, yeah, you know, and other, other, um, leaders probably have witnessed this too over the last couple of weeks is that, um, yeah, like in the midst of a pandemic, what we've been calling the twin viruses, um, of, of COVID-19 and white supremacy and police violence, right? Right. Like in, in the midst of these twin viruses there, when you've already got the one, right, with COVID-19 and then you have these, um, uh, viral instances of, uh, of black folks, um, being murdered, right? Like being killed by the police. Um, that's going to cause a lot of unrest. And what that has meant in a lot of local communities like mine is that, um, folks who, who normally their attention perhaps is not on that, that information on that news, um, uh, in a really acute way. It is now because we're, a lot of us have had to slow down um, in term because of the, because of the first virus because of COVID nineteen, and so um, and then on top of the fact that like folks are socially distant, there's just been a lot of folks who are getting activated for the first time, and so folks are taking to the streets, and it's 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 both it's um, it's both fiery in both literal and metaphorical ways, and um, and 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 in, in many many ways it is. Um, it's telling, right? Like it's revealing of, of what, what is, what has long been a problem, right? Um, in our country. And so, um, so what happened is here in Greensboro, one of the ways that we've tried to more seasoned organizers and leaders have tried to come alongside of some folks who are just getting activated and trying to, um, you know, take them to the streets is to, is to collaborate and say, Hey, okay, we see what you're doing and we want this to live beyond this moment. Um, and so how can we, how can we organize together so that we can make sure people are safe when they are in the streets so that we can make sure that there's, there are opportunities for people to deepen their commitment following these protests, these demonstrations. And so we pulled together a coalition, um, of, uh, seasoned organizers and activists, um, with newly activated folks called Greensboro Rising. 
And um, and we organized a demonstration this past Sunday um, that, as it turns out, is the largest demonstration um, uh, of its kind in Greensboro's history. And Greensboro has a long legacy of civil rights um, and racial justice work. So, th- so it's a really, really proud moment for us in that regard. Over 5,000 people showed up. We had a list of demands uh, around uh, moving policy in terms of um, um, uh, policing in our community. We had over 5,000 people sign that. Um, and, um, and we're already seeing the needle move around that. But one of the offerings, one of the teams um, on that coalition was a healing team. And um, let me just say that it, it was beautiful to, to both have our community call for that um, and for folks like myself and other healers to step up, to rise to the occasion, because we already do that work and um, and to really be able to organize that. So what we had is we had a healing, two healing tents, two healing stations, if you will, at our demonstration. And um, yeah, the healing, we, we, we meant healing in the broadest sense, right? So we invited both clergy um, and folks from other kinds of spiritual and healing and wisdom traditions to join us to offer practices, um, both um, one-on-one practices with people and communal and group practices with people so that in the midst of all this trauma we're experiencing, folks could have a space where they could recline, they could rest, they could rejuvenate through spiritual practice. Um, and so, um, and as well as, as well as professional practice around um, even, even offering therapy. Um, and so that was really incredible too. And so, yeah, I was there with a bunch of good neighbor movement folks, both for that team and, and we were all over the place. And um and we, we, the video you probably, I don't know what the, the video you saw, but one of the videos that's out there is of us leading a community, uh, a communion service um, uh, with, uh, with folks there um, at the demonstration. So yeah, powerful moment. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. So I guess we're not really shifting the topic much, but you know, we're gathering, we're seeking justice, we're seeking equality. A term that I've heard thrown around a lot is we just want racial reconciliation. But like, what does that really mean to you? Is that possible? I was listening to a friend of mine talk and was like, we can't have racial reconciliation because we can't go back to any time where we were reconciled. So what should the church be doing right now? Are we doing it? Are we falling short? What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, you just named it. Absolutely, right? Like what point to the time where we were together, you know? Um, And again, what what people who say that they mean well, right? Most of them, um, the people who I've talked to, most of them mean well when they say that, when they want racial reconciliation. Um, uh, the the challenge, um, though, is that it it is um, it lacks uh, the kind of awareness of history. Mm. Um, it lacks the kind. It, it lacks awareness of the systemic nature of uh, racism. Um, and uh, yeah, it 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 what racial reconciliation is often framed as is about relationships. It's kind of on the horizontal plane of interpersonal relationships. And the truth of the matter is that in a very real sense, if there were ever a time, if we wanted to go with that paradigm, if there ever were a time that we we would have racial reconciliation, now would be the time. America is more diverse than it's ever been, right? By 2050, right? Like we're not going to have any ethnic majority, right? And so so like that's should now be the time that we're reconciled. And yet what we see is Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd killed in the streets. Right. Um, and so so it, like I, I, I want to charitably just say to folks that have had the paradigm of racial reconciliation to charitably say 
um, to charitably challenge them, to agitate them, to, to consider um, whether or not we've ever been reconciled. Mm. Right? Um, um, and again, not just not from an interpersonal standpoint, you can have friends or relationships across racial divides. And I, and I encourage that. Right. Um, you, you'd have to, in, in many ways, live in a. Um, yeah, I won't go there. But uh, the, the, the deeper work. Right. The work of the gospel. Right. Is um, is, is this cosmic, structural, systemic. Right. Um, um, generational, genealogical. Right. Transformation that God calls us into that requires God's work with us, God leading us in that work. And and frankly, like um, I think that uh, in order to do that work, you have to have a deep and profound understanding of the history. Um, and, and another way to say this is that you have to be willing to tell the truth um, to, to to talk about racial reconciliation is just not to tell the truth. Um, it's not to know the truth. And we know the truth sets us free. And so uh, if, if there's going to be any kind of reconciliation that's had, uh, it's going to be because we've done we've done truth telling and truth seeking. Um, it, we've done the work of repentance, which is another way of saying repairing the harm that's been done. And often that harm has primarily been, again, from a structural and systemic standpoint, has been primarily economic. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, again, I talked about it at the beginning, part of the part of the part of the the viciousness of colonialism is a stolen land and stolen labor, right? And that churches and families and institutions um, um, and white communities have been built on that. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, 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 yeah, I mean, we can go more than this, but like the point is like, it, 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 it is, it is, um, it is, uh, it is double speak to talk about racial reconciliation and to not talk about the truth and to not talk about repair. Um, so, yeah. So if we want to name the fact that we've never really been racially reconciled, which I wholeheartedly agree with, but we want to work towards that, as you mentioned, you know, the U S in particular is becoming more and more diverse every single year. And yet we look at our churches and like our standard right now, percentage wise for a multi-ethnic church is 80% dominant culture, 20% the other, like what, yep. what advice do you have to give to churches that are not even close to that 20% goal who are still possibly fragile in whatever way you want to interpret that? And they mm-hmm. haven't even embraced a fully anti-racist mindset. Yeah. You know, we have to start somewhere, right? Like, and so, so I want to, I want to acknowledge that like we all have a starting place and to not be a sh- shame and guilt don't, don't help, right? Taking responsibility is what helps, right? Um, to know the gifts that we have in our hands and the gifts that are around us in the community is, is the, is, is really the, where we should turn our attention. And so I would say that um, wherever your starting place is, I mean, one of the, one of the, and, 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 and in a little while we're going to talk about some more sort of calls to action that will speak to this in, in more detail. Um, um, but I think that for congregations that are uh, predominantly white and want to move towards um, maybe they have one staff person of color, for example, or maybe they have a small, again, population of uh, people of color in their congregation. What I would say is critical is to do this work that, that we just alluded to, which is don't just settle for a kind of reconciliation kind of paradigm, a kind of a kind of like do the deep work of of interrogating the history of your church. How did you come to be in that place? Um, um, how did you come to, uh, how, how did your members come to decide to live in that community? Mm-hmm. How did they come to decide to be at that church rather than another church? How, how did your church come to be in relationship with the kinds of institutions that it has historically been in relationship? Like, 
do that deep interior work, right? To sort of un- to sort of unmask and and reveal the kind of history of white supremacy in your own church. Like that's the that's the best first place because then you're doing your own work, which is discipleship, right? Like you're not trying to fix somebody else or fix black folks or or reconcile with black. Like do your own work, right? Do your own work. Work out your own salvation, right? Is that the, the, what what the scriptures tell us? You're in and, and I, and, yeah, and I would say, and I would say that when you do that work, the, the spirit moves in mysterious ways. People will come. Um, people will come. Um, that's been my testimony. That's 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 what's when when I'm doing my own work of healing, my own interior deep work of justice in my own soul. Right, um, I am better equipped to do the external work of justice and relationship building. Um, it's when I don't do that, and I think I could just kind of go out and have all the right words and say all the politically correct things, right? Like in many ways to, 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 to say Black Lives Matter is, is like, is popular now, right? And so like, so like I, what I, I, would, I would, especially as Christians, I would encourage us to do the deeper work, right? Mm-hmm. Which is always what Jesus challenged religious leaders to do, right? To not settle for what's on the surface, artificial change, to, to go deeper, to go deeper. Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah, there's lots of practical things, but I would start there. I think if you can't face that those kind of that kind of history in your own community, your own family, your own church, it's going to be real difficult to reconcile with anybody because you haven't reconciled with yourself. Yeah. Well, I love that you talked about work and that's a shift that I've seen in a lot of the rallies and protests that I'm attending is people aren't just showing up and saying black lives matter. They're saying black lives matter. So change this law, pass this bill, you know, what's our eight can't wait. Right. So there's an agenda here and people are really focused on an action plan. You want to tell us more about this action plan that you've compiled ways that we can start right now to move in the right direction and initiate change that, we've been longing for for hundreds of years. Absolutely. Let me say this. I appreciate this space. Rachel, I appreciate you. And I, and I would say that we can do this, right? Mm-hmm. We can do this. Um, we have the gift of, um, of, of, of the spirit, right? We have, um, we have um, the empowerment from, from Jesus and the model from Jesus that we actually have the opportunity to, to, to shift the narrative to shift how we've been doing things. Mm. And I, so I want to call all of your listeners, right? Um, it doesn't matter your racial background, but I especially want to speak to white planters and white leaders that like you have both an opportunity and a responsibility and you can do it. Um, and so here are, I, I've put together just um, some calls to action that I think are relevant for in particular church planters and church planting within the UMC. So let me share this, uh, share my screen here. And I want to show this to y'all. Perfect. And we'll put this list on our podcast page so people can click to that link to sign up for it. Awesome. So I'm going to just get some of my notes here since my screen is now filled up with this. (laughs) Hold on one second, Uh, because I want to make sure that I I speak well here about um, about what what these calls are. Um, Of course, it's going to. I have a new phone, so that's not helpful. Let me just let me just go through this um, uh, extemporaneous here. So these are anti-racist calls to action for United Methodist Church planting. And the first one is this: that um, again, whether you are a planter, you are a developer, a district superintendent, right? Whoever whoever pulls the the strings, if you will, right, yeah. for church planting in your context on your on the local church level and on your district level, and even your conference level. This is who I'm speaking to you, 
right? Um, we each can play a part in this. And the first one is that you target giving to black, indigenous, and people of color planters and churches. Um, it's really, really critical. Again, part of what um, um, the reconciliation paradigm assumes is that the only thing that's a problem is that we don't have relationships, right? But part of what we're challenging in terms of an anti-racist commitment, a decolonizing commitment is to say it's about relationships and it's about repairing generations of harm, material harm, financial harm, right? And so so it's important that um, Black and Indigenous and people of color planters and churches not only get the the basic or the standard of whatever the financial um, um, plan is for plant, planters and their churches, but that there's more given to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, repair. OK. Um, the second piece here is that, again, if we're trying to move towards um, if we're going to be visionaries and we already know that our country is moving toward um, a, a minority majority country um, just within a couple of decades. Right. Um, so that's one motivation for doing this. But but again, we can also look at the past. Right. And say that, like, if we're going to repair, we one of the one of the ways that we do that is that we it's, it's not about having. Um, uh, a percentage number, Rachel, what you said or shared earlier, like dominant culture versus like, no, it's about the truth. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that um, we never say we're planting this number of white churches. Right. We never say that. We say we're planting this number of brown or multiracial. And so my challenge would be, again, to name that, like, we're planting a certain amount of white churches per year and that we plant an equal, if not more amount of Black, Indigenous, or people of color um, churches in in your your local setting. So I have to say, I'm I'm just going to like do one little shout out that not every annual conference is like this, Brandon. We have a long, Mm -hmm. long way to go. But I was sitting in on a church development team meeting for one of our annual conferences here in the southeastern jurisdiction, and Mm -hmm. planted more. They've started more new faith communities uh, for Black, Indigenous, people of color plants than Anglo in the last Mm -hmm. ten years. I was amazed. Powerful. It's so like we can do it and we can do it. Developers or DSs are concerned like, oh, you know, I don't we all we have are white pastors. What do we do? Well, turn to your lady, equip them, send them to lay planting. Like we can think outside of the box here because we need to make sure if that we start to reflect the goal that we're working towards and the truth and, and that hope of reconciliation at some point in the future. That's right. That's right. The nice thing I would say is it's especially in light of this this um, the Black Lives Matter movement in light of the uh, our commitment to um, to remove police violence um, out of communities of color. I would say that um, churches can play a role in this. And so mm-hmm. um, so a commitment to give sub- substantially to groups that are on the front lines and particular groups that are led by black and indigenous and people of color leaders um, that are doing the work of um, of anti-police violence in local communities. I think that's really, really critical. Um, the next one is to require, and this is really, really, really critical in terms of the narrative of um, of colonization um, around church planting, to require every white church plant to launch with a black, indigenous, and people of color uh, leader, uh, community leaders, um, to have accountability and blessing from them. I think that is so critical, right? Because what what tends to be the case now is that um, white planters um, plant and like nobody, no, nobody even like, like, yeah, you got blessing from the denomination. Right. But right. Like who lives in that place? Mm-hmm. Right. Who are your neighbors? <laughs> who are your neighbors? Right. Yeah. And so like, um, so it's important to have that blessing and to have that accountability from, 
uh, leaders of color, um, both within and outside of the UMC, I think is I think should be a requirement in terms of um, having a decolonizing anti-racist approach to church planting. Love it. That's like one of my favorite ones on the whole list because it's so easy. You as a yes. white planter, get out there, knock on doors and say, hey, I'm here to listen. I'm here to learn. I'm here to be in fellowship with you in community That's with you. Right. I mean, think about all that we could accomplish if we weren't so trying to much. Absolutely. space, but share and create space for others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I think is another um, uh, very, very practical, one, which is um, to have anti-racism be implemented in the culture and hiring of your body. So whether that body is um, your local, um, your local uh, uh, council, right, or it is um uh or it is the committee on vitality or it is your um your um uh the cabinet right whatever the body is where you have influence that anti-racism is um named and implemented in both the culture and the hiring of that body uh, i think that's really 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 critical um the last last two here um student debt relief assistance i think that's critical because part of part of what has happened for um for uh, clergy of color is that we very, very recently, especially if you're looking with a broader timeline, very recently have been um, able to take advantage of seminary education. And so, um, and then, and even where we have, you take my my situation, for example, we don't have a, a long lineage of seminary trained clergy in our communities and in our families where you have preachers and clergy in your families. And so, uh, and so what that means is that we come into these these spaces um, without the kind of the kind of um, uh, structure and the kind of financial support that we need um, to to really come out on the other side of seminary um, in a more economically healthy um, place. And so um, so, yeah, there's studies out there that show all of the the impact of student debt on um, on students of color. Um, and students from working class backgrounds. And so I think that it should be a requirement um, that if you are going to send a planter of color out into the field, that um, there's also a commitment to provide student debt relief um, assistance um, to them. Um, and then the last one, um, this is really, really critical. Again, part of what I said earlier, which is that Black Lives Matter has now become fairly popular, right? And I'm grateful for that. Folks who helped launch that movement, um, are really, really, uh, we, we are proud and excited that it's becoming more of a norm um, in, in our society. And yet, just like anything that becomes a norm, <laughs> right, um, it has the potential to also become diluted. Um, and so, uh, so it's important that when, you, when you're shouting and protesting and joining up with others to, to cry out Black Lives Matter, in particular for clergy, right, in particular for clergy and for faith leaders, um, for you to also... Um, uh, think about your own theology, right? To make sure that your theology reflects that Black theologians matter, right? Um, um, because I think I think that's really really critical. Um, that it's not just something out there that we're trying to, to change, but right, we're trying to do the own work of decolonizing um, and um, our own our own theology, our own souls, our own thinking, um, and, ma- and and making our own theology, our own souls, our own minds, um, our own faith anti racist as well. So, um, and so, yeah, if this, if this is resonating with you, if this is something that you, you're like, yes, this is challenging, it's stretching, but I believe it's possible again, especially if I, if, if, if I'm, if I'm doing it with others, um, if you feel like that's you and you want to do that, um, and you want to, 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 to set your intention and to commit to, um, to live into these actions, I encourage you 
to um, to sign here, tiny.cc backslash anti-racist UN planting, um, as it is right there on the screen. Um, and uh, yeah, we want to provide, yeah, just a platform, a container for you to express that commitment um, and potentially to also uh, be able to follow up with you and support you in that. So thank you uh, for, 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 for yeah, taking this seriously and doing your part um, to, to commit to anti-racism and uh, decolonization as a church planter, as someone that su- supports church planters. I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks for these call to actions. And Path One is committed to doing what we can to resource planters who are embarking on this journey. So we're collecting, you know, anti-racist resources that you can offer, samples of what it looks like. There's some church plants uh, belong out in Denver and then Two Rivers Church out in South Carolina that have intentional anti-racist weeks with a different theme of every day. And so there are models out there. We, we don't have to, you know, invent this ourselves if we can work as a connection and say, this is how we're making a difference. Try this out. We'll mm. move towards the kingdom of God, towards that goal that um, I think right. we're all longing to see about now. That's right. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Rachel. I'm so grateful for you. I, I think we met like via email, like almost a year yep. ago. You're an incredible person doing incredible mm-hmm. things and you're you're just such a blessing. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you Rachel. Time. I appreciate your you. Voice, your witness. Um, and your encouragement to us today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. All right. And thank you to everybody who was listening in today. If you want to know more about Brandon or the Good Neighbor Movement and the incredible work he's doing, we're going to link to his website. I think we already have on on our Path One page, but we'll do it here on Facebook as well so you guys can follow up and continue to learn from his witness there in Greensboro. So, Thank you so much. Field Preachers Podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.